You know, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. As I look back on my life, the various trials that have been encountered, and you know, the longer you live, the more trials there are in the rearview mirror, and the fewer there are ahead of you. As I reflect back on those trials and getting through them, I'm constantly reminded of the encouragement and the instruction of Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. <clears throat> I think this verse, Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, really captures the same topic that James is talking about in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, and that is the wisdom we need to successfully endure trials without losing our joy. You know, God, God has devoted several books of the Bible to the topic of wisdom, book of Proverbs, several other books are wisdom literature, but in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, the Lord is going to teach us the key to obtaining a very specific type of wisdom, the wisdom it takes to successfully endure trials without losing your joy. Now, when we look at James chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 5 through 8, it's important for us to read it in its context. So I want to read it beginning back in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I want you to notice and keep in mind as we study verses 5 through 8, two things from the preceding context, from the verses which come before it. First, I want you to remember that the book is written to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And as we learned two weeks ago, James' primary audience amongst that broader group were people from his church in Jerusalem who had been forced to flee to other countries because of persecution. So they were living as refugees in foreign countries. Now, if you've ever lived in a foreign country, as Katie and I did, you know how difficult it can be. We talk about things like culture shock and cultural adaptation, this very difficult process of understanding a new place and a new culture and often a new language. 
But for the people James is writing to, the normal difficulty of adapting to a new place and a new culture was certainly compounded by their status as refugees. Most of them had fled with only what they could carry, and so they were poverty-stricken, they were persecuted, and they were in a terrible plight because they were unwanted in the places they fled to. So we see in the book that many of them had been forced to hire themselves out to unscrupulous, rich businessmen who took advantage of their plight, getting work from them without paying them. These were people who were poor, persecuted, and in a terrible plight. That's who this is written to. And so verse 1 reminds us that the context of verses 5 through 8 is the difficult circumstances, the trials of these Christian refugees. The second thing I want you to notice from the context is how closely related verses 5 through 8 are to the verses which immediately precede them, verses 2 through 4. Verse 5 begins with a conjunction, translated in English as but in verse 5. Consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds, my brothers, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, but if anyone lacks wisdom. This conjunction clearly indicates that James is continuing the same topic that he had written about in verses 2 through 4. See, when I, all my life really, until really this week, as I read this, I always thought that verses 2 through 4 was about trials and verses 5 through 8 was about wisdom. But what I discovered is verses 5 through 8 are also about enduring trials. And really the theme is only in one sense wisdom, the other theme, clear theme, is prayer. So the connection between verses 2 through 4 and verses 5 through 8 are made clear by this conjunction. There's another reason why we know these two paragraphs are connected. Verses 2 through 4 and verses 5 through 8 are also connected by the repetition of the word lack. Verse 4 ends by saying that the one who has been matured by trials will be lacking in nothing. That's God's goal. And then verse 5 begins by saying, but if anyone lacks wisdom. So God's goal is that you be lacking in nothing, and now James is going to talk about something that needs to be completed in you, something that God is using trials to produce in you. He wants you to be lacking in nothing, and then he says, but if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and it will be given to him. So there is a clear connection between verses 2 through 4 and verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8 are continuing the same topic. How to consider it all joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. After saying in verses 2 through 4 that God's goal in trials is to bring us to a point of spiritual maturity where we do not lack any Christian character quality, James now is going to focus on one Christian Christian quality, Christian character quality that we often do lack, which is wisdom. As we're going to see later on, wisdom in this context is the heavenly perspective, the heavenly perseverance, and the heavenly purpose, which we talked about last week. 
Remember last week we talked about to have joy in trials, you need a heavenly perspective, a heavenly perseverance, and a heavenly purpose. That is the wisdom now that James is going to teach us how to obtain. Verses 5 through 8 are a continuation of this topic. In verses 2 through 4, James taught us how to have joy in the midst of our trials so that the trials will not crush us. And now in verses 5 through 8, he's going to teach us how to obtain the wisdom we need to, to successfully navigate the complex challenges that trials bring into our lives. In verses 2 through 4, he taught us about heavenly perspectives, perseverance, and purpose. And in verses 5 through 8, he's going to teach us about prayer. To perspective, perseverance, and purpose, we must add the crucial fourth, which is prayer. Prayer is going to be the key to considering it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. This week I received a really thoughtful and beautiful letter inquiring why, if we are to consider all joy when we face trials of many kinds, why we see throughout Scripture so many of the people of God not being able to do this or struggling to do this. We see Job struggling with this. We see David struggling with this, struggling. Why so downcast? Oh, my soul. We see Paul saying that under trial, he said, we despaired even of life. Why do so many people in the scriptures struggle to find any joy, much less all joy, when they face trials? Job, David, Paul, so many others, Elijah, all right of the agony and despair they felt in the midst of their sorrows. And I think we've all experienced that. We've all experienced the confusion and the temptation to despair that comes from trial. That is what James now wants to address. In verses 2 through 4, he said, consider it all joy. Imagine the shock of reading that for the first time. You're one of those Christian refugees. You've had to flee. You, you and your little kids were just carrying what you could carry. You're now in a new country and these rich oppressors are taking advantage of you and you're in poverty and distress. And now you're getting a letter from your pastor back in Jerusalem. And the first thing he says is, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face these trials. And they're thinking, like, they're probably saying, what happened to James? Marbles getting loose back there in Jerusalem. Consider it all joy when we face this, James. Are you serious? Don't you know how hard this is? We're all like that. We struggle to consider it all joy. We struggle to have a heavenly perspective. We struggle to persevere. We struggle to see God's purpose in our trials. We struggle. So after giving us the divine goal, the heavenly goal in verses 2 through 4, James is going to address the earthly reality, the hard reality, that we often lack the spiritual wisdom which is necessary to be able to consider it all joy when we face trials. He's going to address that reality. And he is going to give us a solution which can be summarized in one simple but yet very profound word, which is the word prayer. He's going to say, how do you deal with the struggle? He's going to answer, pray. 
twice he's going to command us to ask God. And then a third time he's going to command us how to not ask God. But his solution to this dilemma is prayer. Prayer is the bridge between despair and hope. Prayer is the lifeline of the soul which is drowning in sorrow. Prayer is the means by which we obtain the heavenly wisdom we need to see the eternal purpose behind our trials. Therefore, prayer is the key which unlocks the divine wisdom that our hearts need to consider it all joy. Now in verses five through eight, we see in the text that there are three imperatives or three commands, all of which pertain to the topic of prayer. We're gonna see three commands, two positive, one negative, three commands, all of which pertain to the topic of prayer, specifically prayer in the midst of trial. How are we to pray when we're under pressure? From those three commands, I've derived the thesis and outline for this morning and then next week as well. To have the divine wisdom we need in order to view our trials from a heavenly perspective. To endure them with a heavenly perseverance and to be refined by them according to God's heavenly purpose, we must pray. To perspective, perseverance, and purpose, we must add the crucial fourth, which is prayer. And James will give us three commands regarding how we are to pray in trial. We must, number one, pray in humility. Number two, pray in faith. And number three, pray in sincerity. We're going to focus on praying in humility this morning and then pick up praying in faith and in sincerity next week. So the first imperative, the first command verb is in verse five. And it's the word ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So from this verse, we learn that we need to pray in humility. Notice that verse 5 begins by saying, if anyone lacks wisdom. It takes humility to admit that you lack wisdom. You know, when you read this in English, you know, it says, if anyone or if any of you lacks wisdom. It kind of sounds like James thinks most of the people have wisdom, but, you know, there may be someone out there who lacks wisdom. You know, you know out of the thousand of you at Calvary Bible Church, you know, maybe there's you know, three or four who really lack wisdom. Maybe a little bit how it sounds at first glance in English. That's not at all how it sounds in Greek. In Greek, there are three ways to say if. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, three ways just to say if. One is a way of saying if and saying, and it's probably the case. If, and it's probably the case. The other is if, and it might be the case. And the other is if, and it's probably not the case. First, second, and third class conditions, it's called. Here, James uses what is called a first-class conditional statement, meaning he's saying if, and it is almost certainly the case that you lack wisdom, then ask God. 
The first class condition assumes the condition to be true. Some translations, therefore, can translate this as since some of you lack wisdom. He's saying, look, if anyone lacks wisdom, and I know that you do, I know that many of you do, here's what to do about that. Ask God for it. The question is, why doesn't James just come right out and say, you lack wisdom, so ask God? Why does he kind of say this like, if, and I know it's the case, you lack wisdom? Sometimes I think we concentrate a lot on the content of Scripture, but not on the tone. This is instructive regarding tone. James doesn't say, you lack wisdom, so ask God for it. He says, you know, if you lack wisdom, maybe you should ask God for it. He's being tactful. He's being gentle. Now, when we read the book of James, we will see that James is kind of a firebrand preacher. He, he does not hold back. When they need rebuke, the rebuke comes hard. But we also see in the book that James loved his people, these suffering people scattered. And so here he writes this in a way that is gentle, loving, and tactful. I think Kistemacher really hits the nail on the head when he writes, quote, James tackles a delicate problem. For no person wants to hear that they lack wisdom and need help. People have to overcome pride to admit that they need wisdom. So James appeals to the individual reader and hearer. He writes, if any of you lacks wisdom. This approach is tactful, for he could have said everyone lacks wisdom. But by saying, if any of you, James gives the reader a chance to examine himself and to come to his own conclusion that he needs wisdom so that he'll follow James' advice to ask God, end quote. Hebert adds, the first step in gaining such wisdom is the consciousness of our need for it. The believer needs wisdom to see his trials in a true light and to profit spiritually from them. James knew from Psalm 73 and the book of Job that the trials that often overwhelm the godly create struggles and require God-given wisdom to resolve them. These people were suffering. And here we see something. Even those who are suffering, in fact, I would say, especially those who are suffering, need exhortation. They need admonishment. They need correction. But here we see James, the wise pastor, not coming out you need wisdom. You lack wisdom. Instead, he tactfully, delicately says, why don't you consider the possibility that you lack wisdom? He's being so gentle, so tactful, we could all learn from the example of not only his content, but his tone. But he does suggest to them, using that first-class condition, that they lack wisdom. And the word lack there is in the present tense in Greek, which talks about something that happens regularly or often or even continuously. It's like, if any one of you regularly lacks wisdom, 
or often lacks wisdom or always lacks wisdom. This is something that's common. Common to all of us and common throughout our lives. We regularly lack the wisdom necessary to consider it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. See, James is not out of touch with reality. When he writes, consider all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, he doesn't have his head floating in the clouds. No, he's there in Jerusalem under persecution writing to those that he said goodbye to. He knows how hard it is. And he's trying to tell them, look, it is impossible to enjoy your trials, but it's possible to have joy in them. No one enjoys trials, but you can have joy in the midst. But to have that, you need divine wisdom. You need a type of understanding and application of truth that can only come from God. It cannot originate with you. As Proverbs 3, we read earlier, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. They need wisdom. And not just wisdom in general, but a specific kind of wisdom. The wisdom to view their trials from God's perspective. David puts it this way. Wisdom, then, is the possession of the believer given by the Holy Spirit that enables him to see history from the divine perspective. You see, seeing history, particularly your own history, from God's perspective is what can enable you to respond to trials in a godly way. You have to see your trials from a godly perspective in order to be able to respond to them in a godly way. And that is what the wisdom James is talking about really is, the ability to see your trials God's way and to respond to them God's way. Hebert writes, wisdom in this context is, quote, the moral discernment that enables the believer to meet life and its trials with decisions and actions which are consistent with God's will. Wisdom is being able to meet all the trials and decisions of life and to do so in a way that corresponds with God's will for you. When we think about the definition of wisdom and what James means by it, we need to just listen to James himself in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Listen to what he writes and how he defines wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? You know, of all the people that he's writing to, you know, some admitted their need for wisdom. Others are like, oh no, I'm wise and understanding. Okay, so... James says, who of you is wise and understanding? Let him show it by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. You know how you can discern a wise person? By the way, wisdom and intelligence are two different things. There's lots of people who can wax eloquent on a whole number of topics, including theology. You want to know how you're how to know when you're talking to a wise person. You will be talking to someone who shows wisdom by good behavior and deeds done in gentleness. That's a wise person. He says in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. 
This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. By the way, again, keep in mind, he's writing to these refugees. Even when you're suffering, you can be manifesting earthly, fleshly, demonic pseudo-wisdom. And it manifests in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Amongst those refugees, there were those who were bitterly jealous. Why does God give me this hard thing and I see this other guy over here, everything's going well for him. It's like the psalmist who said, you know, I almost despaired when I looked at the wicked and I saw how they prosper. The godly are suffering, the wicked are prospering. How is this fair? What's going on? And as believers, sometimes we can be jealous of the wicked. But he says, that's not wisdom. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But now listen to how he defines divine wisdom. Chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom from above, right? The wisdom which comes from God is first pure then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So when James talks about wisdom, that's what he's talking about. By wisdom, James means having a godly perspective on life which enables you to be pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, full of good fruits, unwavering, even in trial, without hypocrisy, and living righteously, sowing peace and making peace. It's to live that way even when life is hard. Show me a person who can be under great pressure and live that way, that's a wise person. You see, living a wise and godly life is not just about the right actions, it's about the right reactions. One of the things that as a pastor is a long-term goal that I have for you and for myself, for everyone I minister in, is to help uh, you and myself through the study of scripture to understand the importance of our reactions. We need to be righteous, not only in our actions, but our reactions. Just as God wants you to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in your actions, God also wants you to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in your reactions to the trials of life. God cares how you react to the person who wrongs you. God cares how you react to the person who abused you. God cares how you react to the tragedies you experienced. God cares not only about your actions, but your reactions. He wants you to respond to trials, whatever that trial is, whatever came at you from outside, he cares about what happens to you now inside. What comes outside may be, what comes at you from outside may be horribly evil, unspeakably evil, terribly hard, terribly difficult. 
But what happens within you should be something that is, first of all, pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, sowing seed whose fruit is righteousness, sown in peace by those who make peace. God wants you to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, not only in your actions, but in your reactions. So how does God want you to react to trial? Well, he wants, to, he wants you to react with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So let me ask you, is that, is the fruit of the Spirit, is the description of wisdom in James three seventeen, is that how you're reacting to your trials? If not, you lack wisdom and you need to ask God for it. When James says, consider it all joy when you face trials, he's reminding us that we need to display the fruit of the Holy Spirit even when life gets really, really tough. And the first step to doing that is to humble ourselves. To admit that we lack the wisdom necessary to respond to our trials in godly ways. We don't love our enemies. We don't do good to them who persecute us. We worry about tomorrow instead of trusting God for it. There are many ways in which we fail to manifest the fruit of the Spirit when we're under trial. So we need to humble ourselves. Admit that we lack James 3.17 wisdom. That we lack the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of our trials. We need to humble ourselves and admit our need. If any of you lacks wisdom, and he's saying, I know you do. If any of you regularly, often, or even continually lacks wisdom, and I know that you do, ask. And that's the solution. We humble ourselves, admit the need, and once we acknowledge the need, then we go to God and say, God, I don't have that kind of wisdom. I'm not responding to this trial that way. That's not what's going on in my heart. What's going on in my heart is not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. What's going on in my heart is not pure than peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering. No. There's a lot of other things that are going on in my heart as I respond to this trial. So Lord, I clearly lack divine wisdom. Then what do you do about that lack? It says pray. Ask, ask God to give you what you are lacking. In Greek, the phrase ask is in the imperative, it's a command. Sometimes in English, it's hard to bring out the force of this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That's not God giving you permission to ask, that's him commanding you to ask. He must ask of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask. Ask God to give you what you lack. The command is in the present tense. So just as the lack is something continual and ongoing and regular, so must be the prayer. As often as you lack, that's how often you need to pray. Every time the response of your heart drifts from something pure and peaceable, when it drifts from love and peace and joy to something else, that's when you need to pray. 
Say, Lord, I'm lacking wisdom here. Ask of God continually. James is saying, if you're struggling to count it all joy, you need to ask God for the divine wisdom which will help you to see your trials differently and therefore to respond to them more righteously. And here's the good news. Look at the back part of verse five, the second part. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. And when I first read this phrase in the Greek, I was surprised by the grammar. And in fact, it's, real, it's pretty complicated grammar, so I needed some help with it from guys who are a lot smarter than me. The reason I was confused is because in Greek, the participle giving appears in between the article and the word God. So you have the God, and the word giving is in the middle, kind of unexpectedly so. Several commentators also note that this is unexpected in the grammar and therefore significant. It functions, as Kistemacher points out, as a descriptive adjective, which indicates that continued giving is one of God's characteristics. James is purposefully emphasizing giving as a key character trait of God. Vlacho says, quote, prominence is given by way of the attributive structure to the character of God. He is the giving God. You see, the way it reads in the Greek, if we're just kind of trying to put it exactly word for word is, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of the giving one, God. Let him ask of the giving one. And that giving one is God. He gives to all generously and without reproach. So, Varner's Amplified Translation reads, Ask from the giving one, God, who gives to all without reservation. I love the way that James wrote this because he's telling the people Look, the solution to this lies in prayer, and it lies in knowing the heart of your Father. He is the giving one. He loves to give. In fact, giving is an integral part of his character. In fact, he gives generously, by grace, not merit, without finding fault. And he promises to give if you'll only ask. That's why James can be so confident. He says, if you ask of this giving one, the one who loves to give, you will receive it. God isn't stingy. He's not reluctant. No, he is the giving God. He's eager to give. He gives to all who ask. He doesn't blame or reproach. He just gives. So if you'll humble yourself, acknowledge that you lack wisdom, and ask God for it, he will give it. This is a phenomenal promise. But of course, Wherever there's a promise, we need to remind ourselves what God is and what God is not promising. Some people almost take this as that, well, God will change your circumstances. No, that's not what it says. It says, if you lack wisdom, God will give it. The it refers back to wisdom. God is promising wisdom in the midst of trials. He's not promising to change your trials. What God is promising here is not a change in your circumstances, but a change in you. That's what he promises to give. He doesn't promise to change your circumstances. He promises to change you. He's more concerned what happens in you that, than what happens to you. 
So Hebert says, this is a prayer for something to be given rather than for something to be done. But isn't that different than how we normally pray in trial? What is 99% of all of our prayers and trials? Lord, take the trial away. Make this go away. Make it better. Get me out of this. We pray so much about the circumstance and so little about the character. But those are disordered priorities. God cares about our character much more than he cares about our circumstances. I'm not saying he doesn't care about our circumstances, but we need to keep our priorities straight. Too often we only pray for our circumstances to be changed and we completely neglect to pray that we ourselves will be changed through our circumstances. We, we don't pray, Lord, what do you want to teach me through this trial? How do you want to change me through this trial? How do you want to refine me through this trial? How do you want me to make me more like Christ through this trial? Christ was a man of sorrows. I'm going through sorrow. How is this going to make me more like him? And Lord, if you're doing that in me, if you're making me more like Jesus through this trial, then in that I can rejoice and I can count it all joy. As we learned last week, God has a purpose in our trials and that heavenly purpose is to refine us and to bring us to full spiritual maturity where we lack no Christian grace, including divine wisdom. It's not wrong to ask God to change your circumstances. After all, we see that in scripture. Paul three times asked the Lord to take away the thorn in the flesh, but God didn't change Paul's circumstance. He changed Paul. Instead of changing Paul's circumstances, God used those circumstances to change Paul. He says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul says that the thorn in the flesh was given to him to keep him from boasting because of the glorious revelations he was being given. God used trials to humble him. So we need to pray in humility. Don't just ask God to change your circumstances. Ask God to change you. God has never promised to remove all trials, but he has, and here is promising, to give you the spiritual wisdom you need to endure them, to be refined by them, and to reach full spiritual maturity because of them. The reality is that we do lack wisdom, so we must ask God. As verse 5 has taught us, the first step to receiving the divine wisdom we need to be joyful in trials is to pray in humility. Next week we'll talk about our need to pray in faith and to pray in sincerity. We're going to come now to the Lord's table as the men come to serve us. I want to invite you to spend some time in reflection. Do you need to humble yourself and admit a lack of wisdom in knowing how to respond to your trials. I'm trying to say that the way James would. Do you need to ask God for wisdom? I'm pretty sure you do. So take this time to ask the Lord for that divine wisdom that is pure and peaceable, full of mercy and good fruits. And pray the Lord will help you to respond and react to your trials with